hi, and welcome to a Voices of Esalen Extended Edition. I'm Sam Stern. Today I'm proud to present the first in a seven-part series focusing on the Psychedelic Integration Conference that occurred at the Esalen Institute in the spring of 2019. I'll speak with the conference founder, Alan Bediner, author of Zigzag Zen and Dharma Gaya, a harvest in Buddhism and ecology. Then I'll present a brief sampler of material from the conference, highlighting some of the week's most notable moments. I hope you'll enjoy a glimpse into what was a rather extraordinary meeting of the minds in a crucial moment in the modern era of psychedelics and psychedelic psychotherapy. Esalen Institute. Interest in this event broke all Esalen records. Over a thousand people applied to be here tonight with us. One of our goals for Esalen was that they would reclaim their leadership in the psychedelic movement. And, and they are. This gathering was inspired by several things, one of which was Mr. Rick Doblin. But we'll, <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll come back to this later. Um, a quote from Stan Groff also. Uh, the founder of Psychedelic Therapy. And when he was at a conference in 2017 in Europe, he said the following, quote, psychedelic substances properly used are probably the only thing that could reverse the suicidal course of Western industrial civilization. Esalen has been devoted to all modalities of healing, gestalt, rolfing, zen, encounter groups, counsel, First on the list historically, however, is psychedelics. Aldous Huxley, Alan Watts, Stan Groff all lived here. Even Timothy Leary spent some time here. But founder Michael Murphy long maintained that one path, to, that there'll be no one path to human evolution here. There'll be no capturing of the flag, as he put it. Although psychedelics came closest over the years. It's no accident that we're meeting in Huxley, named, for, named after writer and psychedelic philosopher Aldous Huxley, who was inspired by the healing potential of psychedelics and who in turn inspired Esalen to be a place where they could be explored. Esalen has been a profound incubator for spiritual education and social change. I discovered it 45 years ago, fell in love immediately with it and everyone who I encountered here. Terence McKenna frequently taught here, and he often stayed with me for a few days, either before or after his workshops. Terence used to recite this quote before every session of the workshops. I'll try to do it in his tone. <laughs> Please keep in mind that lack of brevity is proof of psychosis. <laughs> Wednesday marks 19 years since Terence passed to the other side and not a day goes by that he's not missed. Why now? Why is the psychedelic conference, why are you drawn to, to organizing it, and why is it possible right now in the current cultural climate? So I, I became interested in, I mean, in, uh, psych, with psychedelics from another vantage point, which is not only to access those bliss states and the mystical state, uh, which I think is a beautiful thing to do, but also because I formed a stronger, more intimate, more respectful and loving relationship with the natural world. It, it was part of me, and I knew that. And so I, you know, became important to me to fight for it. 
In the late, mid to late 80s, Esalen was very much a leader in the area of psychedelics. It was attracting a lot of teachers and scientists, uh, had several conferences that were very um, substantial and consequential. They had very important people there talking about, uh, you know, the medicinal use primarily. The benefits in terms of alleviating depression and all those things hadn't been fully explored, but there was definitely an interest in, in their medical application. And, and Esalen was very serious about it. There weren't people getting tripped out all over the place. That because I noticed in myself that shift in consciousness about the natural world, about the uh, ecosystem, the greater ecosystem, which is as alive as we are, or maybe more alive, and had the impulse to want to protect it and do, do, do something to preserve it. At this point in time, we're facing total extinction. But before that, we're facing unbelievable mayhem and death and, and dislocation and problems with an ocean that is turning into an enemy. <laughs> Life forms are dying in it. There's, there's radioactivity across large patches of it. Radioactive water is still pouring from Japan, from that Fukushima site, into the water. Fish are eating plastic, and then we're eating the fish. So we're bioaccumulating plastic in our body. There's so much destruction. And of course, climate change, which has so many facets. It's clearly going to be a huge problem and already is. Other people, much greater than myself, that I've learned from, have said that we may not have much help in this battle to survive if we don't raise our consciousness. And that psychedelics are a, f are a very effective, very profound and relatively fast way to raise consciousness. So to me, that seems really clear. You know, it worked for me, it may work for others. If it only works for a few others, that's a few others more that we have on the right team. Terence McKenna was talking about that. He thought that the only things that could save us from extinction are is uh, Buddhism and psychedelics. At Bioneers, I asked Michael Pollan if it was a surprise to him that he has become the global Pied Piper of psychedelics <laughs> and its best known and trusted advocate. He laughed and said, absolutely. About four years ago, when I read his piece in the New Yorker, Trip Treatment, I knew that the psychedelic renaissance was truly underway. The thing I love about Michael is how he shares his thought process with you, not just the conclusions, but the accumulated evidence in all directions. Michael and I are solidly in agreement about the possibility that psychedelics need to become an ecological imperative. We have precious little time to forge a more realistic and powerful relationship with all forms of life and to do what we can to stop the destruction of our ecosystem. Michael, I am so grateful, as I know everybody is, that you were able to join us. Thank you. So um, I want to start by telling you a little bit about how I came to this subject, because I'm not of psychedelics born. Uh, as you know, I, I've, I've been writing about other topics for a long time. My, my subject as a writer, as I see it, I mean, many people think of me as the food guy, but I always thought of myself as the nature guy, um, because my, my passion as a writer has always been the human engagement with the natural world. All my writing begins in the garden and my obsession with plants and growing them. 
and uh, and understanding the really interesting reciprocal relationship of humans and other species, particularly plant species, how they change us and how we change them, and seeing ourselves in this very um, uh, very much part of nature, not standing outside nature. You know, we're the only species that speaks of having a relationship to nature. I mean, what are the assumptions in that word? I mean, it's bizarre. But we have this odd status in nature that we're in it and we somehow stand outside it. How do psychedelics fit into this? Well, I, I've been interested in all the different things plants do for humans. Uh, they feed us, they give us beauty. And the weirdest thing they do for us, I think, is give us these modes of uh, ways to change consciousness. And that these are all fundamental human desires and that uh, the desire to change consciousness is um, found in every culture on Earth, uses a plant or a fungus to change consciousness, with one exception, and that's the Inuit, because nothing good grows where they live. <laughs> the only reason. As soon as they move to Canada, they get with the program, and they find their plant drugs or alcohol or whatever it is. So that's been in the back of my mind since I wrote a book called The Botany of Desire, which has uh, a chapter on cannabis. And I got very interested in this aspect of what good is it to change consciousness, right? I mean, it would seem to be maladaptive. Yes, relief of pain is important. That's a very good use of plants. But a lot of the more radical ways plants change us and change the experience of consciousness leaves us at kind of disadvantage, right? I mean, you're more likely to be predated. Um, you're not, you're vulnerable when you're high, when you're tripping. Uh, yet we seem to seek out this, this experience. So that, that is a paradox that I've always been engaged by. And what good are psychedelics it should be fit into that question? How, are they adaptive? Uh, are any plant medicines adaptive? So anyway, I, wrote about, I, I started exploring these issues um, in uh, Botany and Desire. And then more recently, I started learning about something you all know about, which is this renaissance of research. Uh, for me, it was learning about the cancer studies going on at uh, NYU and Hopkins. And I found out about that, as uh, many people did, through a little article in the science section of the New York Times about the NYU trials. And I was very perplexed and engaged by that. And like, it seemed like the last thing I would want to do if I got a terminal diagnosis was take a psychedelic, um, give up control over, over my mind at a moment of this maximum vulnerability. But it was helping people. And it ha I need to give you a little background autobiographically. It came at a particular moment, which is my dad had just gotten a terminal diagnosis for uh, lung cancer. And he was uh, already 87, 88, and um, he uh, didn't speak about it. He just really wouldn't talk about it. Um, clearly, it was, he was depressed. He it just processed it very internally. And as many times I tried to engage him in a conversation about what he was going through and what it meant for him, I couldn't. And then here were these people in this trial who I began interviewing for an article. And I was able to have this incredibly candid, open, blunt discussion about death, about mortality, about how they thought about what was coming. So that was, I mean, I never mentioned this in the book, but that was a big part of the background of what got me into it. Uh, it was a conversation I needed to have. And, uh, and as it turned out, these, these volunteers, some of whom are still alive and some, many of whom are not, 
um, shared this with me. Ben Sessa is in the house. Ben has a successful practice as a psychedelic psychiatrist in London and curates my favorite conference every year at the Old Naval Academy in Greenwich, just outside of London. Breaking Convention. What a great name for it, too. Scientists, uh, writers, and researchers give presentations and present papers, as well as poets and artists share their work. Breaking Convention is itself a cultural change agent, as well as Ben and his awesome sense of humor. I'm delighted that he made the long trip over here to teach. Thank you, Ben. I think one, one of the things that comes up in, in discussion about the psychedelic renaissance and what it is, um, is the question, why now? Why is this happening now? What's the reason for this? And there are so many different strands that have come together for this to be now. Um, and it really needs all of them. And it's, it's a combination of science and culture and politics and people and the state of the planet and where we are. And it just seems to be very exciting that it all happens to have rolled into one at this point. So we can talk about different psychedelic eras, can't we? We can talk about the late 19th century and then uh, nitrous oxide and mescaline in the 20s and then what you call the second era, which would be the disco discovery of LSD in the, in the 40s and then the work in the 50s and 60s. And then the one we're in now, the third psychedelic era. And what's really interesting is that people look at the 60s as the psychedelic 60s, as if that was the time when it all happened. But the truth is, what's happening now is far more exciting. There is far more going on now than was then. And not just within terms of science and medicine and research, but culturally. So although we label this psychedelic 60s, someone was telling me the other day in swinging London, 66, 67, you know, with all the psychedelia that was going on then, only 1,500 people were taking LSD. You know, yet the massive cultural explosion that came out of that 1,500 people was vast. But the actual numbers were tiny. And you look at what's going on now, you go to an average party in London and 1,500 people are taking LSD <laughs> on a particular night. So we've got the birth of all of these psychedelic societies. Every single major city all over the world now are linked with psychedelic societies, with the music and the art and the culture. Yeah, it's, it's really great seeing the way the whole dialogue has changed over the last 5, 10, 15 years. And it's just moved away from a lot of the old stereotypes. I remember, you know, 15 years ago when I used to do articles on MDMA or interviews on MDMA, there would always be footage of ravers gurning in fields and black and white pictures of Woodstock. You know, now I can do a podcast for an hour and not use the E word once because it's just not interesting. It's old news, you know. It's much more interesting to talk about clinical MDMA than it is to talk about ecstasy. Readers don't want to read about ecstasy. They've been reading about that for 25 years. So it's we've just moved on to a much more interesting time. We're seeing that all the time and we're seeing this shifting of the stereotypes but it's still very difficult you know I think um, a couple of years ago I was doing a talk at the Royal College of Psychiatrists and I was talking about psychedelic therapy and a guy stuck his hand up at the end and he was a 
uh, ER consultant, and he was saying, um, I can't believe you're being so positive about LSD. You know, this is a dangerous drug. And he said, last week, someone came into the ER department having taken 17 tabs of LSD. And they were naked, and they were rolling around in the, in the waiting room. And I said, right, so what else happened? Did they have to be admitted? You know, did they go to the psych ward? And he said, no, their fr their, uh, his friends came along and took him home. And I said, so did he need to be followed up? Was there any you know, further intervention? And he said, no. And I said, so you have taken objection to my talking about LSD, and you're, you're calling it this knee-jerk reaction of it being dangerous. And the only pathology was naked somersaults in somebody who took 17 times the recommended dose. Now, what if you'd taken 17 grams of cocaine or 17 bottles of wine? You'd be in the ITU or you'd be dead. And yet your knee-jerk reaction is LSD danger. And this is within the medical profession. So there are still an awful lot of, you know, the war on drugs, if it's been successful at one very good thing, it's the most wonderful piece of propaganda. It has poisoned the minds of successive generations of clever, intelligent, erudite people who have believed and sucked up the words that have been given to them about the dangers of these drugs. And we still have an awful lot of work to do. And this is very much preaching to the converted, because if you step out of these wonderful walls, the majority of people, certainly in England, believe that LSD makes you fly and jump out of windows, and when it comes to ecstasy, one pill will kill. And those messages have been remarkably robust over the generations. So we've got a lot of work to do to undo this. And it's about the language language we use and it's about avoiding the stereotypes and it's hard for professionals in this field. My conservative doctor friends think I'm a crazy maverick hippie for being interested in this and my hippie friends think I'm a boring square for talking about the cautions and dangers. So it's trying to find the right language and trying to negotiate the way through and we've got to be shrewd in the way we do that and I think we are doing that and it, it is this multidisciplinary approach. It's attacking it through science and through culture and through literature and through people. Any one of these things alone is not going to do it. But if we can bring this all together, well, I think we'll get there. We have to be shrewd and we have to be careful and we have to be cautious. And then we're going to get through the door and then we can grow our hair long if we still have it. And then we can party. <laughs>
I said, oh my God. I, I actually believed that he would do all the things he said, but I thought it would take a few more lifetimes. I wonder, Rick, if it's surprising to you that your life and the culture at large has evolved exactly as you planned. I, th <laughs> I thought so. Wow. What a, what a great example of the persistent power of, intent, of good intention. Thank you for being here, Rick. I think we would all acknowledge that there's a large number of people for whom the currently available psychotherapies and pharmacotherapies don't help or help only a little or not enough. Right now, the U.S. Veterans Administration, there's about a million veterans that are receiving disability payments for PTSD. And there's about 8 to 10 million people in America that have PTSD, way more from sexual assault and um, accidents, natural disasters, operations, all different causes than just war. But it's the veterans that get most of the attention, but there's way more people that have PTSD from other causes. Even prolonged grief is a form of, of PTSD. And so what we've um, been able to show to skeptics, first off, is that there is a problem out there. And then we may have these theories of why MDMA works, and a lot of these are pretty well-founded theories, but the real data is from outcome research. Do people actually seem to get better? Yeah. And they do. In the therapeutic community, they talk about, particularly for PTSD, that there is this optimal zone of arousal and that people who are hypervigilant, who are constantly triggered, are above this zone. They're too aroused, that everything triggers them, every sound reminds them of, of a trauma or the war or a hospitalization, whatever their trauma was, that they're, they're so anxious they can't process their fear or their, their feelings, that they can't bring back the memories every time they remember it. They, they veer away because it's so painful. Then there's this group that's under aroused, so that one way that you can sort of cope with powerful emotions is to become sort of dead, tranquilized, and you know try not to react to anything. So the idea, first off, is that MDMA brings people into this optimal zone of arousal. And the reason that they do, that it does that is that if you were to design a drug for PTSD, MDMA would be it. So MDMA um, acts in some ways the opposite of PTSD. So people who have PTSD have brains that are different than normal people. They have a hyperactive fear processing part of their brain, which is the amygdala. They, they don't think as logically, so they have reduction of activity overall in their prefrontal cortex. And there's a reduction of activity in the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is where we kind of process memories for long-term storage. So MDMA does the opposite. MDMA um, reduces activity in the amygdala so that you can take in uh, powerful emotions that normally would be very frightening, but you can process it because you don't react as much with fear. MDMA increases the activity in the prefrontal cortex so you can logically discriminate. And then MDMA increases activity between the amygdala and the hippocampus so that you can take these memories and process them. There's a paper coming out in Nature, which is the most um, uh, respected scientific journal in the world, uh, next week, actually this week while we're here at Esalen, there's a paper coming out from neuroscientists at Johns Hopkins about how MDMA in mice um, opens up what they call a critical period for social reward learning. 
And what these critical periods mean is that your brain is particularly responsive to certain kind of learnings, and then your brain kind of shuts down. So we know how about young people can learn language easier than older people. There, there's, so through the MDMA stimulation of oxytocin, it opens up this critical period in social reward learning so that there's no neurogenesis, there's new neural pathways that are built. Old pathways can die out a little bit, like the fear-based pathways. So for people who have these powerful traumatic memories who are unable to work with them in therapy because it's either too triggering or they're so shut down that nothing will happen, MDMA enables them to make it so that the therapy can be effective. The Mushroom Man, Paul Stamets, until recently focused on legal fungi and the amazing features of the mycelium. Paul wants uh, the field of mycology funded to the tune of NASA because of how important it is to understand how we can preserve life on this planet going forward. He was, he was tuned for such a long time on non-psychedelic shrooms, which are magical enough, some people might have wondered if he knew anything about magic mushrooms. He did. But did you know that shrooms build soil and that without it, we wouldn't have food? How about the fact that mushrooms can treat diseases like cancer and tuberculosis, not to mention chronic depression and uh, other mental illnesses? Thank you so much, Paul. Now, Terrence and Dennis McKenna, and Terrence and I became very good friends the last five years of his life, especially when we started making fun of himself. I really enjoyed that. Um, <laughs> but Terrence and Dennis came up with what they call the stoned uh, ape uh, theory. I disagree with them. It's a hypothesis. A hypothesis is, is a speculation that is not supported by fact. A theory is a hypothesis that is supported and tested by fact. The stoned ape hypothesis um, goes basically like this. And um, so, you know, Terrence's brother, Dennis, said, said this, that if only 5% of what Terrence says was true, it was amazing. Um, he was truly a genius, a visionary, and way ahead of his time. And this is where I think Dennis and Terrence that came up with the Stone 8 hypothesis were right on. And I want to add to it. Okay, so the mycelium of... Grassland and coprophilic species are light sensitive. So the stoned ape hypothesis uh, speaks to the fact that when there's climate change, Terence and Dennis speculated that as our primate ancestors came out of the canopy of the jungle and started foraging across the savannas, they would be tracking animals. So what do you do to track animals? You look for footsteps, you know, foot paw prints, and you look for scat, for poop. And so in the subtropics, in the, in the, the scat of hippopotamus, uh, uh, you know, uh, all sorts of ungulates, elephants, zebras, etc., the most prominent mushroom that comes out of that dung is Psilocybe commensis. It's a bodacious, golden, beautiful mushroom, and it can be quite large. So the majority of primates are grub eaters. They eat maggots. So you're hunting with your clan, you're, you're tracking these ungulates across the prairie, you see footprints, you see scat, and you find these mushrooms. You're hungry. They look edible. I think I'll eat some. I think I'll share it with my mate. 
my children, they're all hungry. 20 minutes later, <laughs> lift off. So they speculated that was maybe the, one of the reasons why the prefrontal cortex doubled to tripled in size between 200,000 and 2 million years ago. There's no other plausible explanation at a time of climate change than suddenly Homo sapiens uh, developed. And I think the stoned ape hypothesis is increasingly, from the research that we've been talking about in the past few days, with neurogenesis and the hippocampus and the extension of fear response, makes sense. That the, the splitting off of the primate tree to create Homo sapiens may have been spurred from the repetitive use of magic mushrooms. Marsha Rosenbaum is Director Emerita at Drug Policy Alliance, a longtime activist and writer and who specializes in drug policy for young people. She has written a book called Safety First, a reality-based approach to teens and drugs. She's also co-wrote with Jerome Beck a book called Pursuit of Ecstasy, the MDMA Experience. It's so much fun to have you here. Thank you for being here. I've been in drug policy reform now for about 25 years, trying just in general to end the war on drugs. And without fail, each initiative has been met with that same question. Well, that sounds okay, but what about the kids? What are the implications for kids? If we, for example, if we legalize marijuana, is that going to send the wrong message? Sending the wrong message. Is it going to open up markets for young people? So I, you know, I'm, I'm actually, um, frankly, weary of that question. That's what's why Julie came in here and said, what about the kids? And I said, well, what about them? Um, <laughs> So uh, it, my interest in the kids um, started when I had kids and in, in general, uh, teenagers. And I talked about this a little in, in the afternoon session, but what happened was that my very precocious, very smart uh, daughter at, in fifth grade came home from school and announced to me, as she did, um, that she now knew everything there was to know about drugs. Now, at that point, I had spent a decade researching um, heroin. And uh, <laughs> so I, I thought, well, uh, really, Annie? She, what she said to me was, uh, yes. I said, well, how? She says, Mom, I am a graduate of the D.A.R.E. program. Now, here's the thing. I had barely heard about the D.A.R.E. program at this point. And do you, do you all know what the D.A.R.E. program is? It, 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 drug Abuse Resistance Education began in 1983. And alongside Nancy Reagan's Just Say No. So uh, first off, you know, it kind of pissed me off because every extracurricular activity they did, which included going across the street for a field trip to the park, I had to sign a permission slip. Drug education? I, I mean, it seems to me that I should have known about that, but 
I didn't. So I asked her what she knew. And what she did was she drew a picture on the, our uh, chalkboard in the kitchen, which we had so they could play school, of course. So it visualized this. She dry, draws a cir- big circle, and she says to me, um, Mom, this is your brain. Okay, good. And then she does little circles inside the big circle, says, now, Mom, these are your brain cells. And then she takes the eraser and erases half of this circle. And she says, Mom, you may not know this, (laughs) Um, but when you smoke marijuana, half of your brain cells get erased forever. What is this thing? What is this drug education thing they're getting? And um, so I started to learn about it. And the more I learned, the more frightened I got because I, I saw what kind of information was being taught. And I knew particularly on the issue of marijuana that it was primarily misinformation on so many levels. And what I also knew was that, because I'd been interviewing women who were struggling with heroin, that they would talk about their, the education they had gotten, and they would say a story over and over and over again, that I said, how, how, how did you get into heroin? Well, I, I had drug education, but they told us that um, if we smoked marijuana, we would get addicted right away. And she says, and then the next week they told us that if we used heroin, we would get addicted. And she says, well, nobody got addicted to marijuana, so we thought the entire message must be BS. So they, they throw it out. So, so my job then, I felt, as a parent, and a drug policy reformer was to try and change the way we do drug education in this country. I wanted something I wanted something that looked much more like comprehensive sex education. Um, by that we mean abstinence is the best choice it's like a mantra abstinence, abstinence is the best choice, but if you do Here's what you need to know and do to be safe. And for me, as a parent, safety was my bottom line. I just I wanted them to get through this. So, okay, so I start, uh, I wrote about drug education. I critiqued it. I, I wanted to get this message out. And then I started writing a, this, a series of these booklets, Safety First, a Reality-Based Approach to Teens and Drugs. And uh, this is the sixth edition, so this is a while ago. This, and now we're coming out with the seventh edition this next month. This is information we want to get out there. And I thought, okay, how do I get this har- basically harm reduction information out to the greatest number of parents that I can? Martin Lee, author of Acid Dreams, very interesting book. And more recently, Smoke Signals, an important book on the history of cannabis. We met on the book circuit. I love his new book, Smoke Signals. Uh, he told me all about his interest in cannabinoids and CBD. It turns out that the cannabinoid system of the body is the new, exciting focus of medicine. 
He invited me to attend an ICRS meeting, International Cannabinoid Research Society. I loved it. It was fascinating. I only understood about 10% of it, but Martin Lee speaks science. So he was able to write it up and publish it on projectcbd.org. That is a fantastic site. Uh, if you're looking for in, uh, scientifically correct information and the latest research about CBD, which is on fire right now, that's the place to look, projectcbd.org. Martin, it's great to have you here. Thank you. So I want to focus a little more on CBD I, because, because I think it, it addresses some of the, uh, the key conditions that have been coming up repeatedly during this, event, this meeting. Um, substance abuse, depression, trauma. I mean, CBD is made to order in some ways for these, for these conditions. And when I say CBD, it's shorthand for CBD rich. It means CBD is part of a full spectrum. Uh, there's a lot of research, uh, preclinical research, looking at CBD as an isolated molecule. And now it's been approved as a pharmaceutical for, for some of these tragic uh, epileptic conditions. Uh, the CBD is a legal pharmaceutical in the United States for these, for these uh, specific conditions. Well, well, we can break it down. We can look at uh, CBD in terms of addiction, for example. There's a lot of really interesting, compelling research that shows CBD um, helpful for methamphetamine addiction, cocaine, nicotine, alcohol, even binge drinking, neuroprotective for brain damage from binge drinking. Uh, what's interesting, there's, there's a body of research that's emerging. It's, it's relatively small, but it's very compelling that suggests that CBD has anti-addictive qualities because how it affects memory particularly cue-induced memory. You know, when, uh, for an addict or someone who goes through rehab, or maybe it's an ecstasy experience or a ketamine experience or an LSD experience, it's one thing to go through that experience, but if you go back to the same environment where you were and all the same cues that, that remind you of, of the time of when you were addicted, it's very difficult to avoid relapsing if you're, expo if you're exposed to the same cues. And what they're finding, at least in animal studies, with CBD, it's, some, it's somehow that it breaks that visceral connection, that it breaks the link to the cue-induced memory, uh, that, so that by modifying that, it has this anti-addictive property. So I think this is something really that uh, is a very interesting area of research that will be pursued, hopefully. Um, so now what about depression? Also very interesting, because a CBD has strong antidepressant qualities, and I think by, un by looking at how uh, CBD works in that way, I think we can shed a lot of light on how LSD, uh, psilocybin, ketamine also, ha their anti-addictive uh, um, potential. And I think that the antidepressant properties of psychedelics are very much contingent on this idea of, of neurogenesis, of the creation of new brain cells, uh, neuroplasticity, synaptogenesis, that, that the antidepressant qualities of these drugs are um, tied to the creation of new brain cells, literally. And, and this process is, is very much governed by cannabinoids. And for this, I, I wanted to refer to a few documents. So I'm not going to read in full. But just to give you an idea of what's going on in cannabinoid science in this area in terms of neurogenesis, endocannabinoid systems are one of the most relevant biochemical systems mediating alcohol addiction. The endocannabinoid system regulates adult neurogenesis. Furthermore, adult neurogenesis is inversely correlated with voluntary consumption of alcohol. These findings suggest that adult hippocampal 
neurogenesis is a key factor in drug abuse and that it may provide a new strategy for the treatment of alcohol addiction and dependence. There's dozens and dozens of articles like this. This is not out there, you know, edgy stuff anymore. So we have depression that CBD addresses because CBD is also neurogenic. It also pr promotes the creation of new brain cells. So does L uh, that's THC. So does LSD and psilocybin and ketamine. And I think some of the mushrooms that Paul Stamets talks about I think that, that aren't necessarily psychedelic, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, cordyceps, lion's mane, and, and others, that they also have neurogenic properties. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, there's not much we in the UK can teach you lot about cannabis. Uh, we very sadly are still languishing in the Middle Ages in terms of our drug laws in the UK. Uh, cannabis is a Schedule 1 Class B substance. Uh, Schedule 1 meaning it has no medical value, it is dangerous and addictive. Um, so the law says. Um, class B meaning you could be spending six years in prison for possession of any amount at all, from the tiniest crumb to a big old wadge of it. So uh, very restrictive laws. And we've been lobbying the government for a long time, myself and my colleague David Nutt, on this issue, just about the legal aspect. And I just wanted to say this because I get so irritated by this. My friends here in California who... Oh, you're all complaining about the monopolization and the corporatization of cannabis industry, and fair play, because you've seen it change. There's me in the UK. I could go to prison for six years for that two grams of vegetable matter in my pocket, and you're moaning about whose name it is above the dispensary door? You are so lucky that you can walk into a shop legally, speak to someone, see a whole range of cannabis products and walk out with it in your hand. I could go to prison for six years for the tiniest crumb. So I appreciate your complaints about the monopolization and corporatization, but shut up. <laughs> <laughs> MDMA was invented in 1912 by Merck Pharmaceutical Company. They didn't know what they had at all. Um, it was during, right before World War I. They actually uh, didn't do anything with it for 15 years. Their patent was starting to expire, and they tested it in a bunch of animals. And the animals uh, said, oh, I love this oxytocin release. <laughs> I love it. No, they, the animals didn't say anything. And they, it just seemed like uh, there was nothing to it. And so they, they abandoned the drug. The next time we hear about it is um, 1953, and it's the Army Chemical Warfare Service. And they're starting to look at mind control drugs. And they um, looked at eight drugs, again, toxicity studies in animals, and they went from mescaline on one side to methamphetamine on the other. And so chemically, MDMA is kind of halfway between mescaline and methamphetamine. And that's a really good way to think about it in terms of what it does. So it, it's got the stimulant properties of methamphetamine, but it doesn't make you jittery. It has the opening mind manifesting properties of mescaline, but it's not ego dissolving. It's kind of halfway in between these drugs. So for whatever reasons, the military decided that this drug wasn't particularly interesting either, and they abandoned it. And then it was 1959, Merck did more studies in animals, yet again found that there was nothing interesting in it and abandon it. And so MDMA is, is firmly 100% in the public domain. Then what happened was a drug in the 60s was developed called MDA. 
Um, it was, uh, it's a wonderful drug. Um, it was called the miracle drug of America. It's methylene dioxyamphetamine. MDMA is methylene dioxymethamphetamine. So MDA was very popular during the 60s. And it's, it's like an LSD-MDMA combination in a way. Psychedelics got wrapped up in the counterculture, got wrapped up in the anti-war movement and environmental movement, all sorts of things. And there's massive backlash. We've heard about that from Nixon. And so once the Controlled Substances Act came down in 1970 and all these different drugs were criminalized, chemists were starting to look at how do we modify these drugs that we know about and modify them so that there are new unique drugs that would be legal. Right now, so there's a, a bill called the analog bill. So if you have a drug that's similar in structure or effect to a drug that's already illegal, it's supposed to be illegal too. But at that time, the DEA had to say this particular drug is illegal. And if you tinker with it a little bit, then it's legal. So MDMA was independently rediscovered. Um, actually, it was a graduate student of Sasha that told him to check into MDMA. And he made it, and then he took it. Um, he had this terrific program where he had 12 people that he would develop drugs first, then he and his wife, Anne, would try them. And then if they thought they had potential, they would circulate it to this small group of 12 people to try to get different people's attitudes on how this drug was like, and if they thought it had potential. And then if it did have potential, then it would go to Leo Zeff. Um, Leo was uh, a clinical psych PhD. He had done a lot of work with um, LSD and other psychedelics. Also, Ibogaine. He'd really helped introduce Ibogaine uh, with Claudio Naranjo here into the US. Um, Leo was a tremendous uh, teacher of many, many therapists and psychiatrists. And so once Leo got this drug, he was about to retire. And he decided this drug has so much potential that he came out of retirement. He taught um, many hundred or so therapists and psychologists how to work with it. And from the middle 70s to the early um, 80s, roughly half a million doses of MDMA under the code name Adam were distributed through these circles. Before it became illegal in the mid or late 1960s, a series of different groups, each, each representing disparate aspects of society, they all got involved with LSD for their own reasons and had their own agendas. So initially, there were the scientists, the brain scientists, in the early 1950s, who were using LSD as a, as a tool to study how the brain works study how the mind works. And this was a kind of considered a breakthrough tool. It stimulated many interesting new theories about schizophrenia, about mental illness. The idea was that LSD could make a model psychosis uh, that would um, uh, be something like a real schizophrenia. Maybe if you found an antidote for the LSD psychosis, maybe it would work for the real psychosis, these kind of things. It stimulated a lot. It was really a boon for, for neuroscience. OK, so then we also have, at the same time, um, starting in 1951, as, as early as I was able to document, the Central Intelligence Agency gets involved with uh, LSD. And they refer to it very explicitly in these once classified documents as a potential new agent for unconventional warfare. Uh, so they, then they got very excited about this. And they thought this was really going to be a, uh, you know, you have a, a, a drug now that's odorless, it's colorless, it's tasteless, it's super potent. This could really be a great tool for the cloak and dagger uh, trade, as it were. This could revolutionize U.S. intelligence. And they were, they were as excited about it as Timothy Leary later was for very different reasons. Because a lot of CIA agents back in the early 1950s, mid-1950s, were taking LSD. And the idea was if they're going to figure out how to use this thing, 
they had to experience them themselves to, to understand how they can use it as a weapon. But part of it was also their concern that, well, what if the enemy, what if the commies had LSD, which they didn't at the time, incidentally. They weren't wep trying to weaponize it like later, but not then. What could happen if a U.S. spy was caught by the enemy and they were dosed? You know, what, what could you do to sort of prevent some kind of catastrophe, a leak in secrets or whatever? They, they thought, well, the only way to really deal with this scenario, this possibility, the only way they can inoculate an agent is to give them LSD as part of their training. And this happened. I mean, this is not, this wasn't like a rare thing in the, in the CIA. There was, you know, I read all these once classified documents, um, about 10,000 pages from the CIA, and uh, there, were, there were weekly meetings of what they called the Project Committee, where the different units in the CIA that all had a stake in LSD would come together and compare notes and report on the progress. And there was one meeting, it was from, I think it was November 1953, there was one document where they described um, you know, one of these uh, departments, the, the representative, suggesting that LSD be given to all male trainee volunteers. And then the next point in the document was, why just all male trainee volunteers? Why not all components of the agency? And then the last note is, the projects committee verbally concurred in this recommendation. And I was never able to follow the, or find other documents that, you know, that con continued in the series. So we don't really know what was going on other than there were a lot of CIA people that were taking LSD, you know, very early on in the Cold War. And, you know, raises obvious questions. Well, what did it do to them? You know, the other thing that's kind of amusing is that they refer to a, a CIA agent who was experienced with LSD as an enlightened operative. That was the phrase they used in the document. An enlightened option would be less susceptible by, for manipulation by the enemy and so forth. This was something that was going to change their world. Um, and the U.S. Army also had big ideas about LSD. They had this notion of, you know, of uh, spraying the big cloud of madness gas, they called it. LSD as a weaponized aerosol agent. Uh, put it on a whole city, then the U.S. soldiers can, with the right gas mask can move in and take over. And this was considered this idea of a non-lethal incapacity agent, uh, the notion of war without death, that this would be um, uh, something that would be useful in hostage situations. If you wanted to rescue somebody, you didn't want to kill everybody because you killed the person you were trying to rescue, uh, that this, this scenario could be uh, uh, perfect. They were never able to weaponize LSD, but it gave them the idea to do this, and the Army did develop what we refer to as these super hallucinogens. Um, they're, they're similar, in terms of the natural word, to something like gypsum weed, the glycolate series, a drug called BZ. It was actually made into a series of different kind of weapons. It became a standard agent in the U.S. Army, chemical, uh, the, the chemical warfare arsenal. It was put in grenades, cluster bombs, and so forth. It was actually used in Vietnam on a limited basis. The problem is it wasn't really non-lethal. So it kind of undercut what they were trying to do. So you had the, U the U.S. Army was all excited about LSD. Then at, by the late 50s, you have the therapists who are seeing LSD as going to be a key to expediting therapy. Uh, that, that somehow the LSD had this uncanny knack for making the unconscious conscious. Uh, that, that it, it, and that's why they... Uh, I think psychedelics actually a, a good phrase, you know, to mind manifesting. Simple as that. Uh, and and of course, people, big Hollywood stars were singing the praises like Cary Grant. So there's a lot of excitement in this in these circles. The therapeutic potential of LSD gets projected onto a social landscape in the 1960s by people like Allen Ginsberg and Timothy Leary. LSD is now being touted as a cure-all for a sick society.
Again, tremendous excitement. I totally get it. You do feel that this is a medicine for our moment, um, our specific moment. We were talking the other, the other day about why now. And I think the why now is, has to do with the nature of the medicine as well as the general rhythms of history. Here you have something that in many people who take it, um, especially those who have the, the vaunted experience of ego dissolution, um, and I'd like to brag about mine for a minute. Um, <laughs> um, that uh, this seems to answer to two of the biggest, at least two of the biggest uh, crises we face. Um, one, of course, is the environmental crisis, and the other is the crisis of uh, tribalist politics, right? They're actually the same problem, I think, and I think that's one of the insights of psychedelics, that they are the same problem. And, uh, and let me explain how that is. Uh, I think that as I, and this is based on my own experience. I think that one of the things that happens when you do have this either dissolution or even just shrinking of ego is that connections are established, that what the ego does is build walls. And uh, what the ego does is enforce a subject-object understanding of uh, our relationship to other things in the world, and therefore the objectifying of what we're perceiving as subjects. Uh, so, uh, so much of our nature problem is, is the fact that we do see ourselves as outside, standing outside nature, looking at it as the only subject in the natural world. Everything else in nature is an object. As soon as you call something an object, uh, it loses its, I mean, you, you're then entitled to do with it what you can, right? You can act on it because um, it, it doesn't have subjectivity. It doesn't have agency. It doesn't have its own point of view. What happened to me on my, my first high-dose high psilocybin trip was a powerful experience of, I was in my garden uh, in New England, and uh, a, a powerful experience of the subjectivity of all the plants in my garden. They were returning my gaze. They were looking back at me. They were incredibly benign. They liked me. I'd planted them. I took care of them. Um, and it was a completely uncomplicated, wonderful experience. But it was an idea that I'd had that become flesh, the idea that, that plants have a point of view. I mean, Botany of Desire, the subtitle was A Plant's Eye View of the World. And suddenly I could see the plant's eye view of the world. And it was the most wonderful thing. And I generally had a sense, and I think many people I've talked to have this sense of that subjectivity, or if you want to call it consciousness, is spread much more equally over the world than we think in our ordinary hours. I don't know how veridical that is. You know, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's a wish fulfillment of, a, of an idea I had. It was a concept that became flesh. But there it is. But tribalism is a result of, of course, erecting the same kind of walls, the same kind of objectifying of the other. The other, in that case, instead of being plants or animals, are other people. And that we see them as objects. And we are the only subject, the only one that matters, or perhaps us and our friends and family. So this, this challenge to the, to the rule of the ego that seems to come out of the psychedelic experience has enormous 
political implications for how you see your place in the world and how you conceive of others of all kinds. That's a really big deal. Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldine Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music is by Nico Holloman. The Psychedelic Integration Conference was produced by Alan Bediner in conjunction with Dream Mulek. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please find us on iTunes. And if you like what you're hearing, take a second to subscribe, rate us, and review. You can also find all of our episodes at our website, eslen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. The Eslin Institute is a nonprofit organization. Programs like this one are made possible by the support of our donors. Thank you so much for your contributions to our world.